Today's scripture comes to us from, uh, from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 19. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have, and those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to NCF. Uh, My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, it's my joy and honor to share with you from today's word. Sorry about the weather. Um, Well, not the weather outside. I have no power over that. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry about the weather in here. I'm sorry it was uh, cold and frigid, but maybe it will help you wake up and stay awake in today's very long, boring sermon. So thank you, Jesus, for helping me out. Um, Let's go to the Lord and ask for the Lord's blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy. Lord, we are so lost and so confused without your guiding light in the scriptures. Father, it is only through your word that we understand who we are, who we belong to, and where we are ultimately destined for. And God, we also need your word to tell us how we are to live, what we are to do, who are we are to pursue, and what we are to let go of. Father, these are such big decisions that go beyond our own wisdom, our own ability to figure out on our own. We need the discerning truth of the word of God to speak to us And Father, as we have lived in this world these past six days, that has done nothing but to make us more anxious, more frustrated, and more confused as we are bombarded by the chaos that we see and as we experience. Oh Lord, would you now settle our hearts with a peace that transcends all understanding as you comfort and counsel and convict us through your holy word and the preaching of your holy word. Oh God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people together said, amen and amen. You know, every morning during the week, I walk my three older kids to school uh, right around our neighborhood. They go to PS169, which is right uh, next to our home, and it's a pretty uneventful walk. You know, I hold their hands, and we walk, and we do a little chit-chat, or sometimes we don't say anything other than, hurry up, hurry up, we're going to be late, you know? And it's a pretty uneventful event, but every now and then, something does happen that simultaneously as a father makes me very proud but also very concerned and it all centers around my son Judah my boy you see 
when we sometimes get to school, there are usually, not every, but usually, two to three girls who would say, Hi, Judah. They'll say just like that. They'll say, Hi, Judah. Right? And of course, as a father, as I see these cute, innocent girls being smitten by my boy, I mean, how can I not be proud? And men, I don't care how godly you are, you're going to be proud if your boy is getting a shout out even from uh, first graders and kindergartners, okay? But the thing that bothers me is not so much that, because I just said I'm proud of it, but I get concerned by how my son reacts. Because you know how Judah reacts whenever he kind of gets elementary cat called by these girls? Nothing. He doesn't do anything. He just keeps walking. And I find that so rude. And I get concerned about that. And I'm like, Judah, that little girl just said hi to you. Can you be nice and say hi? And he just doesn't even look. He's just looking down. Hi. And he keeps walking. Right? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know? And then I thought, well, you know, maybe this is just where he's at in his life. Maybe he just doesn't care about the attention of little girls, or at least that's what I thought, because one day I was walking them to school, and then this new girl, who I've never seen before, said, hi, Judah, and this time he was smiling ear to ear. He was like, (laughs) he said, hi, right? Interesting. It turns out it's not that my son doesn't care about the attention of all girls. No, he is not interested in the attention of some girls, whereas at the same time, he's interested in the attention of other girls, right? He's selective in terms of the attention that he gets from the ladies. Now, before you dare judge my beloved son, I want you to know that all of you do that as well. Oh, yes, you do. All the time, you do. All of us in here do this all the time. If you have a Facebook account, if you have a Twitter account, if you're in a relationship, if you're in a marriage, if you grew up in a family, every single one of us in here crave attention. But not only that, we also selectively crave that attention. Because just like my son, just like me, just like everyone else, you value some people's attention of you, and at the same time, you devalue other people's attention of you. We do this all throughout our lives. Case in point, when you're a little kid and you get hurt, you fall to the ground, you scrape your knee, whose attention do you want, right? Do you want your teacher's attention? Do you want your nurse's attention? Do you even want daddy's attention? No. Whose attention do you only care about at that moment? Mommy, right? You don't care about anyone else's attention, no matter how much they give it to you. The only attention that's going to fit the bill at that moment is mommy. But conversely, this works the other way around. Why is it that sometimes we'll say no to a Facebook friend request, you know, from somebody from high school that you don't even want to remember, Or why do we turn down someone asking us out on a date? Or why do we not choose to vote for a certain politician who is soliciting to us a vote from us? Because we know that that just as much we may prefer the attention of someone of us, also we do not prefer the attention someone might want to give to us as well, to where we say, no, thank you, please go somewhere else, go away. Now, of course, it goes without saying that this selectivity that we impose on the various attentions that people are willing to give to us can sometimes go wrong. I don't think I have to convince any of us that sometimes we welcome the attention of someone of us that we should run far away from, and sometimes we reject the attention of someone of us that we should dearly welcome, and we make these kinds of mistakes all the time, do we not? And in the church, there is a specific instance where we make this kind of mistake 
frequently, and that is the kinds of leaders we choose to submit to. That is the kind of attention from leaders that we're willing to give by making them the leaders over us. We're continuing our sermon series entitled, What Now, NCF? And the whole point of this series is to ask ourselves the question, in light of the call that God has given to us as a ministry, in light of the confirmation vote that happened not too long ago, where he's calling us to be our own independent separate church from KCQ, we ask ourselves, what should be our priorities? What should be our goals? What should be the things that we should be mindful of as we move forward in becoming our own independent church? Well, in our text today, we're going to see that as we become an independent church to where we're going to have our own elders and own leaders, we want to make sure that we have the right paradigm in mind when we consider the kinds of leaders that we will voluntarily choose to submit our lives to and in the life of our ministry. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. The wrong kinds of leaders we tend to submit to. Number two, the reason we submit to these wrong kinds of leaders. And finally, how to ensure we submit to the right kind of leader. Okay? The wrong kind of leaders we tend to submit to why we do that, and how to ensure we submit to the right kinds, okay? Let's jump right in. First, the wrong kind of leaders we tend to submit to. Now, it goes without saying that a leader has a big job description. Leaders have to do many things, but one particular thing that leaders must do, probably the most important thing that a leader must do, is that he must pay attention to the people he leads, right? One of the most important things that a leader must do is he must be paying attention, giving his attention to the people he leads. I mean, this is why how our whole political system is set up, right? When we vote someone into office, usually it's because these politicians promise, hey, when I get into office, I will make sure I will pay attention to your needs, your desires, your values, so that I will now have the ability as a leader to make sure that you are paid attention to, right? And and that's how politicians campaign all the time. But of course, what we unfortunately experience too often is that sometimes these leaders that we vote into office who promise to pay attention to our needs and our agendas and our ideologies usually do not, at least not the way that we feel they should. And tragically, we see the same problem happening when it comes to the church leaders we choose to submit to as well. Have our passage up up there, please. Read again what it says in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, just from a casual reading of this verse, you can clearly see that the author of Hebrews is describing the right kind of leaders you must submit to, the good kind of leaders that you want to have as your leaders. And the reason why we know this is because he says, examine their life, imitate their faith, okay? In other words, he's saying these are good examples for you to follow. Any person who's a good example to follow is by definition a good leader. And yet, look at the first word in which he begins verse 7 with. What's the first word that starts off verse 7? He says, remember. Remember. Why does he use that word? And more importantly, what does that word imply about the way in which these, these people, this church that he's writing to, how they perceive these kind of leaders? What does that word remember seem to imply? You know, my wife, I didn't mean to embarrass her, but it's the truth, so hopefully it won't embarrass her. But every now and then I have to tell her when we go out on Mondays to run errands, babe, remember your phone. Babe, remember your phone. Do you have your phone? Did you remember your phone? Remember your phone, right? Why? Why would I keep telling her remember, remember, remember? Because for some reason, while we're driving... Midway through, she'd be like, I forgot my phone. <laughs> I forgot my phone. We got to turn back around and make sure that her phone is there. Because she's a very important person. People need to get in touch with her, right? 
Why is it that you guys get in touch with her more than you guys get in touch with me? That's what I want to know. But anyway, <laughs> she needs the phone because I find out more from her what's going on in your life than you do directly to me. But anyway, that's not a gripe. But anyway, why do I keep saying, remember your phone? Because for some reason, she has a tendency to forget the phone. And believe it or not, that's the same reason why the author of Hebrews is telling this church, remember the kind of leaders you should submit to. Why? Because even though these leaders are great leaders and the kinds of leaders you should submit to, for this church, for some reason, these leaders were forgetful people. They weren't sexy. They weren't attractive. They weren't the kind that naturally causes them to gravitate towards them with any sort of admiration, which conversely tells us that this church had a bad habit of wanting to be drawn to and admire the wrong kinds of leaders. Okay? This church that this author is writing to had a tendency to always be drawn to the kinds of leaders that they should not be drawn to and welcoming the attention of leaders that they should not be welcoming. Okay? Here's the question. Why would a church do that? Read again what it says, starting in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now notice how the author of Hebrews is indirectly referring to the wrong kinds of leaders that this church should not submit to. They're the kinds of leaders that, according to him, teaches strange and diverse teachings. Strange and diverse teachings. Now, what in the world is that? Well, you look at various commentaries like I did this week. All the New Testament experts say they have no idea. They have no idea what these strange and diverse teachings are because the author of Hebrews doesn't go into detail what these wrong leaders were teaching. But one thing that they all do know is the outcome or the consequences or the results of these strange and diverse teachings. And we get a hint of it in verse 8. Listen to what it says there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What's he saying there? Well, basically, in a nutshell, he's saying this. There is nothing and no one like Jesus. Jesus is awesome. He is glorious. He is the awesome of awesomeness, is what he's saying in our modern parlance. It says that in the Greek. Trust me. He's like, Jesus, there's unlike, no one like Jesus. There will never be anyone like Jesus, and there was never anyone like Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In other words, this guy is saying, unlike famous celebrity pastors, unlike iconic cultural pioneers who will one day fade away through the span of history, Jesus Christ will always be glorious all throughout history and throughout all of eternity. Now, what I'm describing to you is kind of like a basic Sunday School 101 idea, right? It's almost like, yeah, if you grew up in the church and you are a Christian, duh, I already know that. Of course, Jesus is the glorious one. He is the famous one. Why does the author of Hebrews find it necessary to teach a bunch of Christians in this church a basic Sunday school 101 idea? Huh? Should it be so obvious to them? Well, maybe it wasn't obvious to them. Right? Maybe it wasn't. And what the scholars tell us is that these wrong leaders who were infiltrating this church were teaching strange and diverse teachings to where it had the effect to where Jesus looked less and less glorious and it made these leaders look more cool, more awesome, more glorious because they were taking attention away from Jesus and putting it upon themselves. And you know what's so sad? This still goes on today in the American church all over the landscape of this country. Listen to what this pastor, John Pavlovitz, says in his article that he wrote, When Your Pastor is Bigger Than Jesus. Listen to what he says. Quote, With technology allowing everyone to have their own public relations department and with our seemingly insatiable desire to consume content of any quality, 
We see mega superstars being manufactured every day. They acquire massive Twitter followers, generate the income of small countries, and impact fashions, politics, and social justice causes with ease. There are lots of these little gods in our midst as believers, cultural idols who threaten to steal our attention and affections, who campaign to take up our faith space. That's really nothing new, as the Bible warns against this continually and clearly. But most alarming of all is that there is a new breed of worldwide pop star whose power and influence daily competes for the hearts and devotion of Jesus' followers throughout the world, the celebrity pastor. The rise of massive megachurches and the influence of religious multimedia organizations have made modern Christian church culture the newest star machine, churning out a seemingly endless supply of overstyled, attractive, charismatic men and women of God who are perfectly bred for mass consumption. They seem totally fine with soaking up the spotlight and getting the lion's share of the glory, leaving Jesus as only a quiet, gracious runner-up. Wow. Celebrity pastor. Now, the obvious question we need to ask ourselves today, Christian, is why would any community of faith, why would any group of Christians, why would any church who are called fundamentally to be followers of Jesus instead be followers of the wrong kind of leaders that they flock to all the time because they seem so celebratory? Why would any church be filled with genuine believers of God be drawn to that kind of charisma, that kind of leadership? Well, To answer, let me go to my next point. The reason we submit to the wrong kind of leaders. Read again with me verse 9, but this time, let's include verse 10, where it says this. Do not be led away by diverse and straight teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, what in the world is this talking about? What is this idea of people living in a tent having no right to eat, some weird altar? What is this notion of hearts being strengthened by grace, not by food? This is gibberish, right? Could be, unless, of course, you're familiar with your Old Testament. Okay? And in fact, if you're very familiar with your Old Testament, you know exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying here. What is he referring to with all this nonsense of, of, of foods and tents and so forth? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. The Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with that concept, let me quickly give you a recap so you can have um, an idea and be up to speed. Before Jesus came to earth, to die on the cross, to be our savior for God's people so that God's people could be forever forgiven and have a forever relationship with him. Before Jesus came, God provided a temporary or provisional way for his people to be in relationship with him and to maintain a relationship with him. And that is through the Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, back in the days of the Old Testament, God required his people to offer various sacrifices on certain days, certain weeks, certain months of the year. It's in the most boring part of the Bible, Leviticus. Look it up sometime, right? It's all in there, okay? And some of these offerings that God's people would give, okay, were edible foods, right? Animals, breads, drink offerings. And the priests who worked in the tabernacle, which was a massive tent, were permitted to eat from these offerings, okay? Now, the reason why... God required all these various offerings during the days of the Old Testament is because he wanted to teach his people symbolically what Jesus would eventually do when he came into the world to be our substitute Savior. This is why, whenever you read the Gospels, sometimes Jesus is referred to or he refers to himself as some of these Old Testament offerings. So, for example, when Jesus goes to get baptized by John the Baptist at the Jordan River, 
What does John the Baptist call him? Behold, the what? Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like what? The Passover lamb? This is why in John chapter 6, he refers to his blood as wine that you have to drink in order to have him, right? This is why he also says in the Gospel of John, I am the what? Bread of life. I am like the grain offering in the Old Testament. I am like the drink offering of wine during the days of the Old Testament. Jesus is always referring to himself as these Old Testament sacrifices, which means in the days of the Old Testament, if the people of God put their faith in these sacrifices... Who were they ultimately putting their faith in? Jesus, and the one that the sacrifice symbolically represented. So for those of you who ever wondered, Pastor John, how did people in the old days get saved before Jesus came to earth? Through faith in the sacrifice, right? The sacrifice that foreshadowed who Jesus was, right? We are saved through faith in Jesus. The Old Testament saints were saved through faith in Jesus, okay? Same thing. Now, with all that out of the way, we ask ourselves, why is the author of Hebrews even, even going into all this detail? Why is he talking about all this Old Testament stuff and especially the sacrificial systems and all these offerings that they did? Well, you have to remember who he's writing to. Who is this author writing to? He's writing to the book of Hebrews. No, <laughs> he's writing to Hebrews, right? That's why it's called to the letter of Hebrews, to the Hebrew people. And he's not referring to just Jewish people. He's talking about Jewish Christians, people who grew up Jewish, people who found God in Judaism because they were raised in Judaism, right? The first generation of Christians were predominantly Jewish people, and the church that he's writing to is predominantly Jewish Christian. Just like our church is predominantly Korean American, this church that he's writing to was predominantly Jewish Christians, okay? And here's the thing. For these Jewish Christians, the Old Testament, they saw it a little bit different to how we might see it today. I mean, they saw it similar to how we see it today, in the sense that they see the Old Testament as embodying the spiritual heritage that makes up their faith, just like we do today. But you know what? As Jews, it's not only representing their spiritual heritage. You know what else it represents? Their cultural heritage, their ethnic heritage. In other words, for these Jewish Christians, the Old Testament and the sacrificial system doesn't just represent their spiritual legacy like it does for all of us and every Christian out there. It also represents their cultural legacy, their ethnic legacy, Okay, which means for these Jewish Christians, it's possible for them to want the Old Testament and to love the Old Testament beyond the spiritual truth it contained. Because it can also be where they value the ethnic and cultural container that contained the spiritual truth. Now, why is that a bad thing? What's the problem with that? Well, let me use a silly illustration. Let's say you buy your mom or you buy your wife these very expensive flowers. Okay, very, very expensive. They cost $10,000 to grow, and hence they cost hundreds of dollars to purchase. And they come in this very cheap plastic vase that costs 35 cents in China to make, right? And you give it to your mom, you give it to your wife, and they're like, oh, this is so beautiful. I love it. Thank you. And she just loves the thing. But let's say three weeks pass by, flowers are all decrepit, they're decayed, right? And you tell your loved one, hey, mom, hey, honey, don't you think we should throw this out? No, I, I don't want to ever throw it out. But the flowers, it's decrepit. It's no longer, it's all voided. It's all disgusting. But the vase, I love the vase. Let's just keep the whole thing because I love the vase so much. There's something wrong with that, right? There's something wrong where you put the focus on the container and not the thing in which the container was meant for and what the container supports and making it the focus of, right? 
Well, that was apparently what was happening to the Jewish Christians in this church. Jesus already came. He already made the ultimate sacrifice that all the Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed and pointed to, which means if you are a follower of God, you no longer need to put your faith in these offerings and sacrifices. You put your faith in Jesus. And because you no longer have to put your faith in these offerings and sacrifices, you no longer have to do it. You no longer have to be a part of a system where you offer a Passover lamb and you give grain offerings and drink offerings as part of your worship to God. But the problem is for this community, they couldn't let go of that. They're like, no, I grew up with this. This is my heritage. This is my legacy. I don't want to let it go. This is what I grew up in. This is how I found God. This is how I knew God. I'm not going to let it go. And, of course, it's that much harder when there are cult-of-like personality leaders who are more than willing to build a church that centers on these outdated sacrificial systems, right, in the hopes that it will enable them to reach celebrity status. Here we begin to understand why some in the church submit to the wrong kinds of leaders because they look to these wrong leaders to fulfill a longing that they have and that every human being has, which is to never be forgotten. To never be forgotten. Let me explain what I mean. I need a drink of water first. If it isn't obvious to you yet, then let me state the obvious to you now. Everyone in here submits to leaders. I don't care how radically independent you think you are and how self-reliant you claim to be. Every single human being depends and therefore needs to submit to leaders. That's just a fact of life because you as an individual are not capable of achieving the desires that you want to fulfill in your life, okay? Let me give you a long-winded case in point. Let's say you're a high school student and you fantasize about being a white-collar professional in the city making lots of money that allows you to live in your dream home somewhere in Long Island, Westchester, Jersey, wherever you pick, okay? You're a high school student and that's your dream. That's your desire, what are you going to do? Well, if you're high school, so you have to get into a good college. But in order to get into a good college, what do you need to do? You need to get good grades. How do you get good grades? Well, you have to submit to your leader, your teacher. You have to satisfy the obligations, the responsibilities, and the demands that your teacher has on you. And as you do, you get into the good college, and what do you do? You do the thing again. Because who's your leader and who you have to submit to then? Your professor and his or her syllabus. And as you do, in the hopes of doing well in school, you hope that you will draw the attention of a recruiter and say, you do get the attention of a recruiter of a company that you want to work at. Who do you submit to then? The recruiter and his demands and his expectations. Then you get into the job. You're in the company of your dreams. And what do you do throughout your company? You submit, submit, submit to various leaders, various managers, right? Various uh, CEOs, whoever, so that you can reach the level of economic and corporate status that you want so that you make enough money to go to Long Island, to go to Jersey, to get a house. But, of course, all those houses are all decrepit. So you got to renovate because you want the dream house. So you make the dream house, but what do you do? You have to first submit to all the codes, all the laws of the city council, and all the things that you want to do to make sure it's submissive to what they say. All throughout life, we are submitting to various peoples, which we could call leaders, who function as leaders, in order to get our desires met. And this is also true when it comes to the most significant, most basis, most instinctual desire that we have the most a desire where we need a leader the most, and that is a desire to never be forgotten. Whether you realize it or not, every single one of you do not want to be forgotten. You have it in you of wanting to never be forgotten. You know, when Donald Trump ended up becoming president, all the media pundits like, how did this happen? 
How in the world can a guy like this end up occupying the most important office in the world? How did a guy like this dude end up becoming president of the United States? How did it happen? Believe it or not, Donald Trump told us how he did it in his inaugural address. Listen to what he said. I'm not going to do my Trump impersonation. <laughs> January, no. January 20th, 2017, will be remembered as the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Regardless of what you think were the economic or political reasons to why Donald Trump became president, the fundamental human universal reason why he got in is because he knew the heart of humanity, what we all desire. Nobody wants to be forgotten. Nobody wants to be forgotten. This is why, by the way, many Christians are drawn to celebrity pastors, by the way. Yeah. You know, celebrity, by definition, is an unforgettable person, right? And so we flock to their churches, we go to their conferences, we read their books, and we take Facebook pics to show off that we're reading their books, and we know all the insides and outs of their ministry. And maybe we can even be on leadership and get closer to them. Why? Because we're hoping that some of that unforgettable status that he possesses will be imputed to us, and hence we will acquire the satisfaction of what we desire the most, of never being forgotten. The desire to never be forgotten is what compels people to choose to submit to the wrong kinds of leaders, and it's also the reason why people cling to certain things like their ethnic or cultural heritage because for them to let go of them, they are endangering the very things that made them who they are today, and hence to let go of them means to risk the possibility of being forgotten. That is what was happening in this context. These Jewish Christians in our passage didn't want to let go of the Jewish traditions of the Old Testament like the sacrificial offerings because for them to let go of that endangered them of being forgotten. But what do you do? Because now, in light of Jesus' arrival on earth, all of those things that they look to as their identity, all the ethnic and cultural heritage that made up the old covenant is now null and void as far as God is concerned. In other words, God is saying, the things that you're clinging to, let it go. Just let it go. It's no longer relevant anymore. Consider these words from New Testament scholar Philip Hughes who wrote, I think, the best commentary on Hebrews. He also taught at my alma mater, Westminster Seminary. Listen to what he says as he reflects on these verses. He says this, quote, The security of earthly cities, establishments, and institutions, however religious they may be, is illusory. Illusory. The history of Judaism has already shown that even Jerusalem, the city of God, and its magnificent temple dedicated to the glory and worship of God were destructible. And soon it would prove again with the transitoriness of the restored city and temple. It is imperative, therefore, that these Hebrew Christians, tempted as they are to insulate themselves by retreating to the traditional respectability and apparent solidarity of a system which Christ's coming has rendered obsolete, should learn that here in this present world order, we have no lasting city. We have no lasting city here on this earth. What's he saying here? He's basically saying this, look, <laughs> if God can make null and void the very culture and heritage that he himself created through his covenant with Abraham, Moses, and David to where it's null and void, if he can make that irrelevant, do you not think that he could make our cultural or ethnic heritage irrelevant as well? If God can end the legacy of the city of God, Jerusalem, 
He can end the legacy of any institution, even institutions that at one point did great things for God. Do you realize what that means when it comes to the leaders we submit to? Do you realize what it means? There is no leader out there. In spite of what they say, in spite of how much they show off with their celebrity power status, that can fulfill the longing of all of our hearts of never being forgotten. There is no leader out there who can promise you that they can build an institution that will guarantee you to hold on to the things that you treasure, right? There is none except one, except one. To tell you more about him, let me go to my final point, how to ensure we submit to the right kind of leader. Read again verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Here the author of Hebrews tells us the right kind of leaders we are to submit to. They are the leaders who one day will give an account to God. Now what does that mean, to give an account to God? It basically means this. Spiritual leaders, pastors, elders, we one day will stand before God and we will be held accountable on how we led his people. Not my people, not our people, but his people. Okay? And if you go up to verse uh, 14 and 15, excuse me, 15, it tells us exactly what God will hold us accountable for. Read it again with me, starting in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The thing that all spiritual leaders will be held accountable to God for is on whether they led God's people to depend on something beyond this earth to satisfy their desire to never be forgotten. And it's nothing on this earth because as we just read, everything on this earth is going to be gone. It's going to fade away. Whether you're talking about a city, whether you're talking about a nation, whether you're talking about a government, whether you're talking about a church, it's all going to be gone. The only thing that is going to go on forever and will have an eternal legacy is what the Hebrew author says, the lasting city. What is this lasting city? What is this lasting city that is not on the earth? Listen to what it says in Hebrews 11, two chapters prior to our passage for today. Starting in verse 8, it reads, It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going, and even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and she was too old. She believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that like the stars in the skies and the sands on the seashore, there is no way to count them. All these people died still believing that God what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The city that God is... Preparing for Christians is the heavenly city that all earthly cities, all earthly institutions, all earthly churches point to symbolically. And that is the place, Christian, 
we ultimately belong. That is the place where we are never forgotten. That is the place where our legacy is found. You know why? Because the leader of the city, the one who rules the city, never forgets you. And how does he not forget you? Well, have our passage up again. It tells us in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. What is this verse talking about? It's talking about the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God loved you so much that he became a man who came from an obscure family, from an obscure town, amongst an obscure people group. And why did God go through that? He did that so that he could ultimately be, be crowned king of his people And as the leader of his people, lead his people to the place where they will be forever remembered and never, ever forgotten. Here's the question. Where did this leader get crowned? Where did he become king? We just read it. He was crowned outside the city gates, the gates of Jerusalem. Like, wait a minute, it doesn't say that. It says he suffered outside the gates. Oh, Christian, did you not know that when Jesus died on the cross, when he was being crucified, that was his coronation ceremony? (laughs) Did you not know that was his inauguration as being crowned king? Did you not know that when Jesus was seated on his wooden throne, he was given a crown? Of course, not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And that in his hands was not given a golden scepter to hold, but iron spikes to be driven through his hands. And not to sit on a throne of gold and marble, but a throne of splintered wood. When Jesus was hung on the cross, that was when he was made our king. And here's what's interesting. He was made king not inside Jerusalem, outside Jerusalem, which is so weird because in the Old Testament, Jerusalem is the city of God. That's where the king of God's people is supposed to be coronated. But Jesus was not coronated in the earthly Jerusalem. You know why? Because Jerusalem, the hub of Jewish ethnic culture and identity and heritage, is not the city of God. It's not found in Jewish culture. It's not found in Korean culture. It's not found in white culture. It's not found in African-American culture. It's not even found in multi-ethnic culture. It's found in the culture of God that comes through the gospel, through faith in the gospel. The gospel says our King Jesus, through his suffering and humiliating death on the cross, is the only true leader who will take us to the place that is our legacy, the place where we will never be forgotten, where we will have a king whose celebration will go on forever and hence his celebrity status will go on for eternity. That's the pastor, that's the leader, that's the king that we look to. That's the one we depend on in order to satisfy the longing of never being forgotten. We don't look to any celebrity pastor, we don't look to Trump, We don't look to any political leader. We look to our King, Jesus. That is what the gospel teaches us. So putting all this together, how do we ensure we submit to the right kind of leader? It's simple. Submit to the kinds of leader who preach this gospel. Submit to the kinds of leader who says that the only way you can truly satisfy your desire to be remembered forever is not going to be through some celebrity status that your pastor acquires who allow you to build an institution that you hope goes on for generations to generations so that you can hold on to some earthly legacy. No. It comes to the one pointing to you, the one who is your true legacy, the one who is the one who will make sure you're never forgotten. 
It is through the heavenly city, through Jesus. And here's what's so amazing. When you read Revelation's account of this heavenly city and what it's going to be like, do you know it's going to be a multi-ethnic, multi-diverse, multinational institution? Listen to what it says in Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful that we don't have to cling to our earthly heritages or legacy because God has already ensured it lives on in the new heavens and the new earth, which means the only thing we need to focus on now is proclaiming the gospel of this king and pointing to the heavenly city that he has built with his hands and his feet and his brow. It's all about proclaiming the gospel and building a ministry that is centered on the foundation of the gospel the gospel of our heavenly king who makes us part of his heavenly city. One of the things that people asked me after we did the vision night was this notion of diversity. Um, If you were here at the vision night or you saw it on Facebook, I talked about how diversity was one of the things that is propelling us to have this new vision that we articulate or I articulated. And one question that I got is, are you trying to make this into a multi-ethnic church? Is NCF going to be multi-ethnic, right? Multicultural, right? And um, I said to this person, no, we're not going to be a multi-ethnic church, or at least a better way to put it, we're not trying to be a multi-ethnic church. But we're not trying to be an Asian church either. What are we trying to do? We're just trying to share the gospel with the people in our various social networks, our oikos. And if 10 years from now, a predominant demographic, if this congregation is predominantly Korean or Asian American, so be it. Praise God. If 10, 15 years from now, as we are faithful in sharing the gospel, our ministry becomes more multi-ethnic, right? Because that's just the way God providentially is working out. Praise God. We need predominantly Asian church. We need multi-ethnic churches. We need churches of all kinds. But the thing is, it's not about maintaining some earthly legacy that's so centered on a specific heritage or culture or ethnicity. It's all about the heavenly city being lived out in our community, whether it's Pan-Asian, white, half-black, half-white, half-Chinese, whatever it is, it's all about proclaiming the gospel and let God decide how this ministry turns out. The only thing that I want our ministry to be about is a ministry that is looking forward to the heavenly city to come where the heavenly leader always remember us, never forget us, and make us part of a legacy that goes on for ages to come. Here's my question. Is that your conviction as well? At this time, I want to invite you to just spend some reflecting moments in light of today's message. And this is a very important question that you need to think about as you consider moving forward with us as a ministry, especially in light as me serving as lead pastor here. And my question is this. In light of the outcome of us becoming an independent church, what kind of church are you envisioning? What does it look like? And what do you want it to be about? Is it about 
preserving some legacy that you're going to burden the next generation to keep going after you're gone and for the next generation after them to keep going and all about building an earthly city all centered upon you or is it going to be about pointing to a heavenly city where the legacy of faith that is established through what Jesus has done on the cross that becomes your priority that is what I hope you would consider to be what you want NCF to be. I invite you now to go to God in prayer and reflect. Let's pray. Fathers, just as it is certain that one day we will be no more and that we will come to an end. Father, we know that anything that we build with our hands will also come to an end. And yet, Father, we are not without hope. For we know that when we make our primary identity and citizenship not on the earthly institutions that we build, but the one that you have built through your suffering on the cross, the heavenly city, God, we know we can therefore be faithful in the current earthly institutions that you've called us to serve as vehicles of expanding the knowledge of God through the gospel. And God, I pray that we would never lose sight of that. Just like the old saints of Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah have looked to the promise, even though that promise was yet to be fulfilled, that they lived by faith and not by sight, and that they were confident that you shall never forget them. For even now, after thousands of ten thousands of years, we even speak their name, that our names would also be spoken by your lips as you call us your own, as you call us your people. Father, as we move forward in this direction of becoming our own independent church, oh God, help us to remember that, that you've commissioned us not to build an earthly institution that centers on us, but to point others to the heavenly city that centers on you. God, help us to remember that. Help us to always cling to that more than anything.
give us grace, give us mercy to hold on to that beautiful truth so that we could be recipients of grace and mercy as you have given to this church thousands of years ago. Oh God, hear us now and enable us by your grace. For we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people together said, amen and amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give, but if you are a member of this body, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.